Hello everyone, my name is Jacob Emerson. I'm an editor with Becker's Hospital Review. Thanks so much for tuning into the Becker's Healthcare Podcast Series. Today I'm very pleased to be joined by Ken Steele, who's a partner at ECG Management Consultants, and Joe Mangrum, who's a principal at ECG, who are both here with me to discuss strategies and trends around payer reimbursement in 2023. Joe, Ken, thank you both so much for taking the time to join me this afternoon. Thanks, Thanks Joe. So with that, hoping you both can tell a bit about your roles at ECG and then a little bit more about ECG itself. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that, Jacob. This is uh, Ken Steele. Again, thank you for inviting us to this podcast. So ECG is a national healthcare consulting firm. We have uh, offices in in nine cities. There's about 240 of us that do uh, healthcare consulting. And we have within ECG multiple practices. Uh, Joe and I are both in the managed care services division, but we have IT, we have performance transformation, we have academic medical centers. We do just about anything that the other healthcare consulting firms do, except we don't go in and sit, sit uh, in organizations with big re- revenue cycle teams. But most of our work is strategy. We have long-term marquee clients across the country, um, and we're part of Siemens Health and Ears. And Joe, how about you? Yeah, hey there. Hi, everyone. My name is Joe Mangrum. Uh, I'm a principal at ECG based here in New York City, uh, and I lead our firm's payer practice. So that means my clients traditionally are health plans. And I know that will probably put me on the other side of most listeners on this podcast, but wanted to come and provide some insights to your audience into what payers are thinking and and how they're reacting to negotiations and other related reimbursement issues. So very happy to be here. Looking forward to the discussion. And Jacob, maybe I should just comment briefly. Uh, Thanks, Joe, for that introduction too. Um, So what I do is mostly work with providers. Joe works with payers, but uh, we help them negotiate uh, contracts with uh, with uh, health plans, national health plans, regional health plans. Uh, so we work with hospitals, large health systems, physician groups on managed care strategy, reimbursement, uh, contract negotiations, and language. We also deal with alternative payment models, things like bundle payments, as an example, value-based payments, pay for performance. So anything to do with innovation in, in payment, Joe also deals with that on the on the uh, payer side. Fantastic. Well, glad to have you both here to represent both sides of the, the healthcare spectrum. And with that, that kind of leads to my first question for you both. Um, tension right now, and always, but right now, Beckers has been reporting that 78% of hospitals, their relationships with payers are getting worse. Specifically, they're citing issues around the prior authorization process. So based on both of yours, your work, your experience with healthcare clients, again, on both sides of the spectrum here, how would you both describe the current environment between uh, the nation's largest payers and providers? And Joe, we'll start with you on this one. Sure. Yeah. Jacob, the only word that comes to mind is contentious. Uh, I'm seeing it more (laughs) and more that payers are willing to term relationships pretty early on in the negotiations, um, even with larger provider groups. And as you mentioned, it's, it's especially when it comes to the larger national plans. You know, if we compare that approach to what negotiations look like in the past, termination used to be more of a, a bluffing technique. And I believe that the underlying reason for the new approach is because the larger payers are becoming more and more vertically integrated. Right. And in their minds, they don't need the outside provider groups as much as they once did. And so, of course, we've seen this with UHC and Optum together. And now we're seeing it more recently with Aetna and Oak Street Health. 
so it, you know, I, I only see this trend of contentiousness continuing um, in the near future here. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And I would be curious, Ken, what you're kind of seeing and yeah. hearing on the provider yeah, think, side of things. Yeah, I think Joe's word contentious is uh, is appropriate. I'm, I'm frankly surprised it's not more than 78% of the hospitals, uh, you, know, you know, feeling like the relationship is, is getting worse, but it's different. It's difficult. There's very strong differences of opinions. Uh, payers are talking about keeping healthcare costs down. At the same time, you know, healthcare costs are rising rapidly you know, because of the pandemic, uh, shortages of, of labor, supplies, et cetera. So uh, we're kind of at two ends of the spectrum here where providers you know, need rate increases to continue to provide access to services, invest in technology, uh, continue to add you know, quality and value. And, and the payers at the other end of the spectrum are saying, we need, to, we need to hold healthcare costs down. So it's extremely contentious. I don't see it getting any better anytime soon. So Ken, if we're talking then about that contentious relationship, at the end of the day, what do you think that is, how these relationships, the on the ground impact, what is that on operations, finances, and then of course on the staff and all the patients that are in these facilities? Yeah, I think I think um, health plans you know, are struggling just in terms of being responsive and they have their staff shortages too. So what payers do in terms of paying claims, denials, uh, paying a claim, a claim short, it's difficult to follow up and get those issues resolved. So it's it's impacting operations because of the, I would say, not great timely follow-up from, from payers when there are payment issues, as an example. Um, I think it's... it's um, denials are, you know, continuing to increase and, and uh, then how hospitals and physicians have to appeal those claims. So there's a lot of uh, claims uh, not being paid timely that was pretty well uh, documented during the pandemic. I believe it's gotten a little bit better, but um, the way that health plans operate um, can make hospitals inefficient or efficient. And I think right now it's a very inefficient relationship between uh, providers and also health plans in terms of the, the impact on operations. So I would say it's, it's not great. And uh, again, hard to see that it's going to be improved anytime soon. Joe, you might have some comments on that question. No, I, I agree with you. And I do also agree that there's shortages in staffing on the health plan side as well. Um, you know, we're seeing on the health plan side, people reaching out to even begin a negotiation and no one is able to get to them for four or five months. Um, it, it's just a much longer runway than it used to be. So I, I completely agree, Ben. Wow. I mean, and it's certainly not surprising, I guess, even from our perspective on this, reporting on these issues nationwide, we're seeing contract breaks um, all the time. And, and like like you, one of you had said, it's not a bluff anymore. It, it seems to just happen. Um, they're not even using the threat of it going into the media uh, anymore. Um, we're just seeing large health systems completely go out of network with large insurance companies. So I guess, Joe, I'd be really curious then, what, who are the payers that um, or how are, how are they approaching this when health systems come to them and ask for higher reimbursements? And when they do say yes, how are they, why? Uh, who, who is successful here yeah. navigating these, this contentiousness? Yeah. Um, so before I answer, I, I'd ask that everyone listening, please not attack the messenger. <laughs> Just trying to relay, you know, what the, my payer clients are telling me. Um, but no, you know, lately, some of my payer clients, they've come to me and said, look, we've been contracting with 
a certain provider for years and without fail, when it's time for a new agreement, the provider comes to the table and they begin the conversation by saying, we want higher reimbursement rates, right? And then what I've been seeing more recently is that health plan leadership is starting to say, well, what are we receiving as a health plan in return for that increase? So, you know, what, what I've seen work for providers when negotiating is to come to the table and say, how can we actually be your partner? And, and I know, believe me, that that is a huge mindset shift, but I've seen it, especially recently, be a really highly successful tactic. And it kind of makes sense, right? If we think about there are certain things that are invaluable to a payer that a provider can produce for them, uh, things like correct coding and documentation each and every time, annual health assessments, lower ED admits, better HCC recapture rates, et cetera. These are the fundamental things that a health plan needs to be successful and profitable uh, because they factor into more accurate risk scores and better star scores, among other things. So a provider can go in and say, look, we can give you all of this. And for it, we're only asking for a nominal increase in reimbursement and then uh, possibly some incentive payments as well. And, and that type of approach, I've seen payers just be a lot more receptive and then ultimately more willing to concede. Interesting. So Ken, what happens when you tell provider clients they need to be offering more benefits to payers? They can't just come into the room with requests for higher reimbursement rates. Yeah, well, I think it's really a good question, but I think what's happened is the value-based care that we all thought would take hold and accelerate really got sidetracked with the pandemic. And as much as payers talk about it, employers talk about it, we don't see health plans you know, pivoting strongly to value-based care. So right or wrong, it's still a fee-for-service game where hospitals have you know, increasing costs and they need those costs to uh, you know, reimburse. They want health plans to, to pay their fair share. So um, value-based care is usually a secondary discussion. It's not a primary care discussion. Now, there are some, some, some exceptions to that, but what I've seen is still mostly a fee-for-service rate game. Not saying that's where the, the healthcare delivery system needs to be, but short-term, that's where we are. We do see some value-based care improvements, some incentives you know, being put into place, but uh, the majority of the negotiations are based upon fee-for-service, and, and sometimes health plans don't have the infrastructure, the transparency, the data metrics. Um, there's, there's a wide spectrum of uh, capabilities and competencies with health plans around value-based care. And so that's part of the frustration is there's so many different models out there, and there's different timing in terms of implementation. We have some providers that are willing to do value-based care, but health plans aren't ready to do that. And sometimes health plans are ready to do value-based care, but the providers aren't. aren't. So it, it's moving more slowly than many of us would like, but unfortunately, that's just the current state. Yeah, absolutely. And I know Beckers has recently reported, our, our most recent numbers is that value-based contracts made up 6.7% of medical revenues for primary care specialties nationwide as of August. So still in the singular percentages there, um, so then let me pose to you both, how can the industry better support this, this hopeful trend toward value-based payment models? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that first, but I think part of it is, you know, transparency in terms of if you're going to be in a value-based relationship, you've got to 
both parties have to have data. Both parties have to understand the formulas are being you know calculated to determine the incentives. There needs to be you know a strategy. You know how how can the health plan help how, help the provider? How can the provider help the health plan in terms of implementation? What are they seeing that worked? You know you know nationally in other markets. So there's have to be more information strategy uh, and planning in order to have successful results. So um, that that has to I think improve dramatically. And there's something called trust where you know, because of the contentiousness of the negotiations, you can't quickly pivot to, well, we have a contract now, so let's let's move on and, and cooperate and do value-based care. It's usually not a product of a contentious negotiations to come out with, you know, more value-based care. It's, it's, a, it's still a fee-for-service game. So until that trust improves, and I think providers feel undervalued by the health plans, you know, I think it's, it's going to be difficult to achieve any more penetration than that 6.7%, Jacob, that you referred to. Yeah. Joe, curious on your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think uh, payers need to become more innovative in the payment models that they're proposing. Uh, you know, anecdotally, I was recently in a meeting between a payer and a large provider group, and the payer was proposing sort of your cookie cutter value incentive or value-based incentive model. And many of the providers within the group voice concerns that the, pay, the payments that they normally see in a value-based model don't really allow for the provider to pay for his or her staff and expenses throughout the year, right? Because value-based payments often come in the form of a, a bonus, for lack of a better term, right? So I think that's one example of how a, a payer could be creative with how payments are structured, and then the provider will be a lot happier and then there will be more adoption of that type of model. Um, but I think also just generally uh, completely agree with Ken about how the pandemic set this process back. I'm optimistic because I think we're seeing some writing on the wall that CMS wants to move the industry fully into a value-based model. Um, they've already started a, a little bit, right? But, but the pandemic slowed it down. But I think that once CMS rolls out more guidance and regulations on the government programs out of the house that focus on higher quality care and value-based payments, then I, th I think you see it trickle down more and there's more adoption in other lines of business, which will then hopefully make the process go more quickly and smoothly. Certainly. And I know Medicare Advantage has made major strides in the value-based space. I believe that is uh, the most common type of health plan to be in that type of arrangement. Um, so, so some good signs on the horizon at the federal level, but it sounds like some of the value-based models aren't necessarily offering enough right now. And at the end of the day, it is a fee-for-service based game. Um, I guess that's what I want to ask you both is, is that if a hospital wants to address payer negotiations and, and reimbursement issues. Where, where should they start? Well, you know, part of it is, you know, most hospitals have what's called joint operating committees. So they meet with the payer representatives to talk about authorizations, denials, you know, underpayments. But unfortunately, that model doesn't work very well. Um, there's been a lot of turnover, you know, in health plans and also some some hospitals. So these relationships, unless they've got longstanding relationships, it's hard to get traction on solving those kind of day-to-day -day operational problems. So what we recommend, at least on the managed care side in terms of providers, is get your managed care and your revenue cycle people together with the same people 
on the health plan side, the contracting folks on the health plan side and the people that do uh, you know, payment and denials on the author authorizations on the health plan side and see if you can have regularly regular meetings, you know, with an agenda, with issues, and get some continuity to build up, you know, trust and understanding of each other's problems. We understand on the provider side that you know, there's a lot of national processes that payers have in place to be more efficient. And we get that at the same time, maybe things that are impacting hospitals negatively that health plans might be able to change, but you have to have a, a commitment to having a relationship, having a dialogue, hold each party accountable for follow-up. We've done this in Chicago with a number of systems in Chicago where they didn't have good relationships with health plans and problems weren't getting resolved, but putting this kind of structure in place. And sometimes it requires a hospital CFO calling a health plan CFO and said, gee, we really need your help and support. Works to look through some of these operational issues. I mean, just like health plans, hospitals want to be efficient too in terms of how they're spending the dollars and they're always trying to reduce their expenses. But um, that's how I see it. And Joe, your your kind of final thoughts here on how um, how payers should be coming at this from the start. Yeah, I guess. Well, I I was sort of thinking about it, um, just providing some advice as far as on the provider side. You know, I'm thinking back. I have a client in the middle of the country that's a smaller regional plan, and similar to what I was talking about in the beginning, is they've had some difficult staff turnover in their network management area. And so we went in and we started to look at what was going on with providers that wanted to contract with the health plan. And there was a uh, probably hundreds of emails worth of providers that had reached out and nobody had responded. And so what's ended up happening at that plan is now the CFO took over and the CFO there at this health plan is, is now making this a main priority. And I'm noticing that's happening at more and more of the smaller health plans. So I think that sometimes what ends up happening is that providers don't necessarily go all the way up to the C-level, which makes sense, right? You're probably not going to get a lot of responses from the C-level, but I think it's different at a smaller plan, at a regional plan. If you can't get anybody to respond, I would recommend going to CFO or, or the VP of finance finance at a smaller plan. Because um, again, I think that you're just going to have a better response rate. And then generally, again, as a recommendation for providers, I think it's a really good idea to start gathering data on uh, what other providers are being reimbursed in the same geographic area by the same payer that you're going to negotiate with. Right. So we, for our clients as a firm on both the payer and provider side, we can tap into a lot of very powerful tools and databases. And of course, the number one, one uh, data tool right now is data, I'm sorry, price transparency, right? So we're able to use that to help parties be more informed when they do get to that negotiation table. So if a provider is able to figure out the reimbursement rates for that payer, it'll be a lot easier to negotiate in a more confident manner. Really interesting. And you both will have to come back to talk to us a little bit more about the, the price transparency piece to all this, because that's obviously a huge other side of this topic. But Joe, Ken, I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob. 
I'd also like to thank our podcast sponsor, ECG Management Consultants. You can tune into more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page at beckershospitalreview.com.